Welcome to the Gospel 101 Pod Class. This is Pastor Tom speaking. It was a pleasure getting to get together with you for our first class just to discuss what this class is all about. It's a little bit obvious. It's called Gospel 101. And so the basic purpose of this course is for us to understand what is the gospel. Because that's a pretty important question to be able to answer for yourself in terms of your own faith. And some of you may have decided to take this course because you understand, you feel like you understand certain pieces of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and all of that, but there might be some missing links there. But for others of you, perhaps you're taking this class because you recognize that if someone came up to you and asked, what is the gospel? You might find yourself a little bit tongue-tied. And so I'm glad you're here because that is what this class is aimed at addressing. It doesn't give you necessarily all the skills that you could possibly obtain for sharing the gospel, but what it does do is help you get a narrative down in your mind of what is the gospel. And so last week, we basically discussed some of the basic building blocks of what is the gospel, which is the word itself, gospel, Greek word, euangelion. It means good news. And I gave you an opportunity to write down what this gospel, what this good news message is. And yet we also discussed the fact that so often this message isn't received as good news to those around us. And that's something that we want to try to deal with here in this class. And we're dealing with it by using this book called True Story, A Christianity Worth Believing In. And so we're going to be diving into that this week, and I'll just be going over some of the initial questions that we have for week two. This is A Crisis of Faith, pages 9 through 38. Now, usually when we meet in person, it's a really dialogical format. Obviously, we're not speaking in person here, and so I'll just try to wrestle through these questions, and hopefully it gives you some food for thought, and perhaps it's a help to you as you try to answer the questions yourselves in the forms that I give you to respond with during the week. So let's just dive right in. As we open up True Story, we're greeted by a sort of prologue, before we start, that's what he titles it. And what James is doing here is just laying out for us what the purpose of his book is, what what was his inspiration for it, and what his goal for this book is. And as hopefully you've read, he goes on to describe how during his college years, he was very passionate about sharing his faith and of how he used to hold a Bible study in his dorm room, and how of one time when he was holding that Bible study with a bunch of guys, there was this fellow who showed up and overheard what they were talking, didn't really want to come in, but overheard what they were talking about, and as soon as the fellow heard what James was saying about needing to believe in Jesus Christ in order to have eternal life, in order to, quote-unquote, go to heaven, um, that that drew a very negative, sharp response from the guy. Uh, he immediately asked, so what are you saying? You know, if I don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to hell. And then basically onward to saying, so if my parents don't believe, I don't, they're not going to go to heaven. 
And uh, basically, James said, yes, if you don't believe in Jesus, you, you are going to face punishment. And yes, you know, if your parents don't believe, they're, they're going to face punishment as well. And basically, the guy just says, well, if they're not going to be in heaven with me, then I don't want to be in heaven either. And the guy just turned away, walked away, and that was the end of the conversation. And that made a real impression upon James Chung because he felt as though there was something more to be said. Now, initially when you hear that from him, you're thinking, oh, you know, was, did he say the wrong thing? And that he, was he wrong in saying that they're going to face punishment in, in hell, that they that there was punishment for sin? No, that's not what James is trying to get at. But what he was saying is, is that he understood that there was something missing in his gospel presentation and that the gospel isn't just simply reduced to heaven or hell, but there's a lot that goes on in between there and there's a lot fuller picture that's to be presented. And yet he was at a loss for how to really give a good, concise presentation. And obviously his circumstances with that fellow were a little bit they, they were pretty difficult, actually. Um, but we, too, find ourselves in those situations as well. And so, and this is why we're, we're doing this book. This is why we're reading this book. And, it, and it's because James has written this book in order to provide it as a tool for us. He says right in his introduction, he, re- he recognizes that sometimes we might want to just throw a book into the hands of some of our friends who might have questions and... He totally recognizes how that's usually not helpful because people nowadays especially have a tough time going through books. And so he admits, he says, what you have in your hands is obviously also of bookish length, but its purpose is to highlight a gospel illuminating tool called the big story. This story is a way of sharing the gospel that is, as Einstein said, as simple as possible, not simpler, capturing more fully the good news as Jesus taught it, while also making it easier to share. This is, comes on page 11 of True Story. And so the purpose of this book isn't that you can read it and say, hey, this is a great book. I'm going to just hand it to my friend to read. Now, perhaps in some situations, that might be a good idea. But the real point is, is that James has written this book in order for us to really soak ourselves in the narrative that is to come, that we'll be able to see in the situations and through the characters that he uses, how it is that we can go about sharing the story of the gospel in a very conversational and a very natural, simple, easy to use sort of way. And as we'll see, he does this in part through the use of a diagram, but really the use of the diagram is in order to kind of framework offer a frame for our narrative so that we can kind of see, okay, I've got to go from point A to point B to point C to point D and trying to kind of bring this thing full circle. And so this book is to act as a tool. It's to equip you to, well, first understand the gospel, but also then be equipped to be able to easily explain it to others. Getting past this opening section, just explaining the purpose of the book, we immediately jump into a section that's called Altar and then also Bento. 
And basically what these two little sections are leading into is a scene in which the main character, Caleb, has driven his car through the Seattle rain to this restaurant to meet up with this girl named Anna. And Caleb's in college, and uh, Caleb and Anna, they're both, they're both friends. Uh, Caleb is a little bit attracted to her, and so he's trying to convince himself that this isn't a date, and so he's fighting off those, trying to fight off those feelings, but as he's in kind of in the midst of being consumed by those sorts of thoughts, he's immediately kind of slapped upside the head by this wave of anger that just comes out of Anna, not directed really at him, but at Christians as a whole based on something that she had seen in a local, they call it Red Square, which I, I don't know anything about the uh, West Coast. The only Red Square that I knew of was in Moscow. So that I found that <laughs> interesting, but apparently there's a Red Square or maybe it's just a fictional location. And basically she talks about how in this square, she saw this protest going on being led by Christians against this pride rally that was going on. And she basically takes that as kind of a launching point for just offering up a a criticism of Christians in general. Uh, Basically, their unfriendliness towards the environment by their their buying practices, that they, they drive big SUVs, stuff like that. Uh, that they've joined the NRA, uh, that they pick in abortion centers and bomb other countries. And she just goes on and on and on, basically lashing out with anger. And so we cannot, it's very easy to see the reasons, the particular reasons themselves for why Anna is angry angry with Christians. There's kind of a deeper reason beneath it all that I think that we need to ask as to why Anna is angry at the church, why she's angry at Christians. And that's something that I want you to be be considering. Why is it, do you think that she's angry? Putting all these particular surface issues aside, why is it that she's angry? And have you seen that sort of anger before? Now, I have seen this sort of anger before, and I think it's what it's tied up with really is, aside from the fact that there just seems to be, rightly or wrongly, just a sense of moral outrage for um, Christian support for some of these, in some of these areas. So, for instance, what I mean by rightly or wrongly, you know, Christians being criticized for being against abortion well, that's not really a valid criticism. The way that Christians treat the environment, in some cases, that might be a valid criticism. But I think what's underlying that sort of anger is really a sense of Christian hypocrisy. That they see they see the way that Christians act, and it seems to not match up with what the teachings of Scripture are, and specifically the teachings of Christ. And I have to tell you that 
there's probably nothing more damaging to our witness for the gospel than when we live in ways that are contrary to Christ's teachings, when we live hypocritical lives. Now, of course, sometimes the world has, they don't always read their Bible correctly, and so they have misunderstandings about what Christ teaches. So, for instance, some some think that Jesus would teach, well, you shouldn't ever judge anybody. And by that mean by that they mean don't ever be critical. And in fact, some of the ang- Anna's anger stems from that a little bit. She's like these Christians, they're just judging everybody. They're judging me. And then she's angry at God in her church from her childhood church and saying they always judge me. And um we recognize, or we should recognize, that it is true that Jesus teaches against judging to the extent that Jesus hasn't called us to sit on the seat of judgment that he alone can take up. That is, we're not the judge, because the only judge is God. But that being said, there is still a place for calling people out for their conduct, albeit, though, in a patient and loving way. And unfortunately, it's that piece, the patient and loving way that very often Christians can forget, Um, especially when it's people that we're not related to, when it's just uh, kind of people in the public square. We can be very vulnerable to kind of lashing out in fear and so lashing out in anger that's what I'm trying to say is that by us seeing the way that other people are acting it can cause us to lash out in anger just because we're afraid or maybe just because we want to make ourselves feel better about ourselves by judging other people and that's those are both wrong ways to respond but just put yourself in Caleb's shoes if, if you're sitting there at the table and someone basically just comes all at you with this anger towards Christians, how do you respond to that? I mean, internally, how do you respond to that? Do you kind of seize up and be like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do? Because I can tell you that's, you know, that's, that's kind of my initial reaction. And that's Caleb's initial reaction. And then it's interesting the external response that he gives is he simply says, I don't know. Now, that's not the worst way to respond, honestly. It's not the worst way to respond because what it demonstrates is a certain level of humility because think about the position that you're being put in. When someone someone comes at you with all this anger aimed at Christians, some of the... Some of the actions that our fellow brothers and sisters are taking, have taken, is indefensible. So if you respond with a defense, all of a sudden it looks like you're kind of associating yourself with that directly. And so that you're trying to defend actions that are really indefensible and are, aren't commendable. Um, but then if you take the opposite route and you say, oh, yeah, those Christians, blah, 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 then you're also kind of painting with a very broad stroke when uh, 
there's some subtlety in play, especially when you're talking about issues like abortion, and there can be other issues as well. So when someone responds in that sort of emotionally just very intense way, it's not always the worst thing to say that I don't know. But probably the best response is something that ends up getting played out. And, you know, in our natural conversations, we can't always just have a go-to answer. And so it's okay to let our responses to those sort of criticisms kind of play out. Like, let someone vent to you. And then just the next time that you meet with them, maybe you can pick it back up with after the anger has kind of subsided a little bit. Um, but what we see in this book is kind of a played out response to Anna's criticisms and not just in a defensive sort of way, but kind of reframing things, saying, being able to take the gospel and use the gospel to, to either meet Anna in agreement in her criticisms and saying, yeah, we need to really call those Christians out or being able to kind of say, well, you know, the fact of the matter is is that you might feel that God is judging you and that Christians are judging you simply for saying that something is wrong. But the fact of the matter is is that we do have to come to terms with the fact that we have done things that are wrong. The problems in this world, it's not as though they all exist outside of us. And it's just like, oh, it's just everybody else and there's nothing wrong with me. And so there needs to be able to come a point where there's a little bit of a self-realization of our own culpability with the brokenness of this world. And so I won't get ahead of, ahead of ourselves because Caleb's going to get there in this whole uh, drama uh, But it's not always the worst thing to respond by just saying, I don't know. Because in that moment, it might not be the best time to respond. But played out, you can offer a fuller response. When Caleb left the restaurant after saying, I don't know, not knowing really how to respond, he got back in his car and as he was driving, A lot of the critiques, the criticisms that Anna offered really kind of sink in. Um, And he began thinking that she wasn't really all that wrong in pointing a finger at hypocrisy that seemed to exist, especially among American Christians, and, and brought him back to an experience that he had going on a missions trip to Manila in the Philippines. And he spent time among these people who were basically living in this landfill, just people who were completely impoverished, who were picking through trash just to try to get by day to day. And just of even the incredible violence that he witnessed with a teenager who got murdered. But... How even in the midst of all that terrible experiences, he had a really powerful, positive experience in being able to pray with the people, to be able to be a presence among them, to offer them comfort, 
And it really opened up his eyes to see how God met those who were suffering and who are impoverished where they're at with his love. And so it was really impactful for him to be taken out of kind of his American context and to be placed in a place that was in a very much different, uh, was a much different environment. And so after his trip in the Philippines, he comes back to his church, called, which is called Experience Church, and he shares his story with, his, with the church. He says, he writes, and this is on page 26 and 27, he says, later back in the States, Pastor Jeff asked the new leaders at Experience to share about their summers. Caleb couldn't help but gush over the things that he had learned particularly that God was a God of peace and justice and had a special place in his heart for the poor. Caleb shared with tears in his eyes about how experience could start supporting the poor overseas, how they could hold prayer meetings for the people that he had met and fallen in love with. He stood up and pleaded with them to make more space in their hearts and schedules for this. Then he sat down. And so after sharing just this powerful experience that he'd had in the Philippines and how it's really kind of prompted him to uh, really see the needs of those who were way worse off around him. He's gone back to his church and he's calling out his church and saying, hey, we need to be praying for these people. We need to be reaching out to them. And his friend, Pastor Jeff, the lead pastor, basically says, that's great. And then... He moves on and he asks this, and some other woman from the church basically shares about how she shared the gospel with her friend and how she started to come to church and of how great that is. And Pastor Jeff's response to that is way more enthusiastic than his response to Caleb's experience because when Caleb shared his experience, he Pastor Jeff basically asked him, so, did anyone get saved? Anyone make any decisions for Christ? Basically something like that. And Caleb was like, well, no, we were just kind of getting our feet wet. And it was kind of just laying the groundwork. And Pastor Jeff wasn't all that impressed by that. And so as Caleb's kind of reflecting on this, he's reflecting on how unimpressed he was by Pastor Jeff's response to his missions experience. And why is that? Why is it that Cale was so disappointed? I mean, after all, isn't the most important thing the gospel? Getting people saved. I mean, who has time for helping the poor or reaching those who are impoverished. Now, I know you you and I, we, we don't say that that's not important, but it's, it's somewhat of a stereotype, but it, it's a useful stereotype, I think, because it's something that we can all fall prey to, I think, and that is that all that really matters is what is to come, 
and what's going on here in this world today doesn't matter. And the gospel doesn't have anything to say to that. The gospel only has something to say about the afterlife. And that's where Caleb's disappointment is really rooted. It's, it's that it doesn't seem like Pastor Jeff is concerned about these people at all. It's as though they're of secondary importance. And that seems contrary to the way of Christ. And this kind of very obviously relates to Anna's own criticisms based on, you know, what she's seen out of the conduct of Christians in the way that they just don't seem all that loving. They don't seem all that caring about the world around them. And so leading into our, our next consideration, our next question, what is Je- Pastor Jeff's gospel message seem to be conclu- exclusively concerned about? Well, we've just said it. It seems as though he's exclusively concerned about that message. His message seems to be exclusively concerned about getting to heaven. And that's all that matters. And Caleb offers a helpful illustration of this on pages 29 and 30. With You've got two cliffs and then... You've got a cross that lands in between. That's Jesus. And so our sin, we're stuck with our sin on one side of the cliff. God is on the other. And there's this great gap in between because of our sin. And when Jesus comes and dies, he provides a way for us to get over, basically. And that's the extent of the gospel narrative. Now, it's very intuitive. It's a very easy way of explaining the gospel, But we have to wonder, and this is really what we find Caleb wrestling with, is this really the full breadth, depth, and weight of the gospel? Is it simply that Jesus came to be a bridge? Is it simply that Jesus came to be in fire insurance so that we wouldn't fall off the cliff down into the lake of fire? Or is there something more. I think that in our hearts, we sense that there's something more there. And from what we know that we sense that there's something more there, because in Jesus' own teachings, it doesn't seem like he reduces his own ministry down to just simply saying, I'm providing a bridge into heaven. Because we have to wonder, well, why does he spend all this time healing the blind and the sick? Why is he reaching out to the people who are basically the social rejects? Now, it's obviously to provide that ultimate salvation, and that's in, that's in view, that's part of it. But going to what is ultimate doesn't obliterate everything else that should be included under that. But so often that happens. So often when we think about evangelism, of sharing the gospel, it's just reduced to simply sharing a very simple message of believe and you'll get into heaven. If you don't believe, you're going to hell. The end. And Caleb is realizing that something's off here and that if this is all that the gospel is really about, 
then maybe Anna and others like her aren't so wrong for being turned off by it. I mean, do you think that people are right to be turned off by it? I tend to think so. And, and if they are right, then we have a real problem on our hands because the reason then why people are rejecting the gospel isn't because the gospel itself is offensive. And the scriptures tell us to expect that. And we can't expect that we can make the gospel palatable, completely palatable. But just because we can anticipate pushback because the gospel brings consciousness of sins and none of us want us to want to admit that we're a sinner, just because we can anticipate that doesn't mean that, well, we can't look at our evangelism critically at all to consider whether the things that we're doing, the things that we are saying might in fact be the offensive piece and not the gospel itself. Because if it's the case that the things that we're doing and the sort of message that we're saying are what is offensive and not the gospel itself, we're going to be held accountable for that by God. Because the problem isn't the hearts of the people that we're going to. The problem is in our message. We're setting up roadblocks between God and those who need to be saved. And so this is why this... This whole course is so important because while we might lead some people to Christ by certain ways of explaining the gospel, maybe by using this cliff illustration, while that might work part of the times, there's also a whole lot of people who are going to be pointing out the gaps, like Anna. And if our gospel doesn't have anything to say to those things, then we're missing out on a whole bunch of people that God has called us to reach out to with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so it's essential that we understand the full scope of that good news, understanding why it is that the gospel is good news, not just for eternity, not just for the day that you die or the day that Christ returns, but why the gospel is good news today. Because that's what people are really looking for. People are looking for good news. You know, they talk about it. You'll hear people say, I don't like watching the news because the news is always just bad news. It's just, it's a good way to get yourself depressed. People really want some good news today. But if the gospel is reduced to something that's far off in the future and doesn't have any immediate impact the good news doesn't meet us at all today, then it's tough to really feel that it's of much value. And I think that's what we're seeing in our culture, is that people are, are becoming more and more dissatisfied with a version of the gospel that simply leaves out everything else that comes before the day of Christ's return. Everything and basically says that doesn't matter. And they're right to be dissatisfied because that's certainly not the gospel that Jesus preached. So next week, we'll be dipping into 
pages 39 through 76. This is the section called Designed for Good. And the scripture that I'd like you to read for that week is going to be Genesis 1 through 2, since it lines up really well um, with that section. So tune in for week three. Take time to respond to the questions just so I can see uh, some of your own thoughts. And I look forward to eventually meeting up again with you in week four. Till then, over and out.